Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. So uh, first things first here before we jump into Ephesians. A few weeks ago, when all you UT fans, when your team beat up on my Wildcats, I told you that I was trying to find an orange shirt and nobody could hook me up with one on a Sunday morning. But Big Daddy Word came through for me. And I don't have to wear a UT shirt because it's an Astros World Series champs. And uh, I told him, I was like, you bring me a World Series shirt, I'll wear it. So we're going to preach in this today. If you all watch the live feed, often you don't have to adjust your color or anything. I'm actually not going to be in gray for like the next hour. We'll see how this works out. So, Justin, I hope that doesn't mess anything up with your camera settings. I know it's been set one way for a long time. I don't know about this orange, but... Congratulations on your Astros win. You got one on too, don't you? Yeah. I hadn't even noticed you. I'm so bad about that. Like, I don't see anything like fashion, visual. I'm really, really bad about that. Um, so good. That's good because you're going to come here in just a second too. So then second thing before we uh, jump into Ephesians, one of the members of our church here, Tyson Ward, is moving this week to Chattanooga. It's been a decision he's been praying and thinking about for a while. And I'd like for us right now to have a time of prayer over him, that one of the things I think for us to really understand both the body of Christ, the way it's supposed to be as a local church, and then the kingdom of God and the church universal, is that we're not about just us here, <laughs> and not just about our location. And so, like, I'm sad. Tyson's a good friend of mine. We've done a lot of lunches together over the years. Um, and I'm sad to see him go, but at the very same time, one of the conversations that he's brought up to me and some other guys that, that we do lunch together pretty often is that he's just thought a lot of times about, I feel like God may be moving me somewhere to take some of the things that, that we do here and that, that I've learned here about making disciples and for me to share that with other people. And so that's what we're praying today, that when he goes to Chattanooga, friendship goes to Chattanooga. That's our thought. And so Tyson, if you want to come up here right now and and Tyson has served in our student ministry for a long time, so I've asked Eric to come up here with him. And then some of you all that know Tyson, too, and you've been in community groups with him and stuff, if you want to come up right now and just lay hands on him. Um, and even if you don't know him and you just want to pray over him, we're just going to have a time of prayer for him right now and for how God's going to use this move in his life. And it is a really good reminder for us that this is way, way bigger than us, and that everything that ever happened in our church happened in this building, then we're not even close to what Jesus is calling us to do when he says, go and make disciples of all nations. And so I think this is just a great reminder. Uh, and Tyson, I just want you to know we love you, and thank you for all the ways you've served here, student ministry and welcome and greeter. You've probably gotten a donut from Tyson sometimes. Um, and so I'm going to lead this time of prayer here in just a second, but I'm also going to give us time, if you just want to be praying where you are, if any of you all feel led to pray here for a minute, I'm not going to say, it's going to be quiet for a minute, like mic-wise. If you want to pray over him, and we're going to pray, Tyson, just for the doors that God's going to open and the ways he's going to use you to make disciples as he moves you to Chattanooga. So let's pray together right now.
Father, I thank you for Tyson and for his friendship for several years in my life. I thank you for the ways that you are at work in his life. And I pray that uh, as he makes this move to Chattanooga, that that he, most of all, but all of us would see it as you moving your people where you want them to be. And not him leaving here, but us getting to send him out. And Father, I pray that he'll be sent for your purposes, with your spirit in him and your spirit leading him to make disciples wherever you take him, wherever you place him, wherever you plant him. I ask you to bring people into his life that he can point to Jesus people into his life that he can take to your word and pray with and read with and study with people who will know you more and know more of the truth of who you are because you bring Tyson into their life and them into his life. And so, Father, we ask this for him and we ask this for us as a church and him as part of this body, Father, that you would do this work, that this would be way, way bigger than just a physical change of location, but that this would be part of your kingdom purposes and your spiritual work in his life and through him uh, in other people's lives. And so, Father, for, for the ways that we may get to see this and hear stories over time, we thank you and we anticipate that. And then for all the things that you will do in your kingdom that we won't ever know on this side, just the, the impact and the results and the, 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 the trickle effect that that we don't get to see. We trust you with that, and we pray, Father, that you would multiply that and magnify that a million times over and that you would continue to let your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray this for Tyson uh, with, with the sadness of, of distance separating us, but with the, the thankfulness of the relationship that we have because of you and and the excitement and anticipation of what you're going to do next. And then most of all, Father, with the thankfulness that, that we can be separated, even for years here in this life, because we know that we have trillions and trillions and trillions of years together to worship you and thank you forever for what you've done in Jesus on the other side of this life. And so use us now with that in mind. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We always want to celebrate that. You know, it, I know I talk fairly often about the difference in what can become our typical church culture, um, especially in the Bible Belt in North America versus what we see as a biblical picture of the church. And a lot of times like, we view this as, hey, we're losing somebody. Our little kingdom here, our numbers are going to change a little bit. We're losing somebody, and somebody else is going to get them. And that's not what's going on, because we don't have a kingdom here, and this isn't about us. And this is an extension of us. This is God expanding our impact. That's number one. And then number two, it's like a lot of times when people leave, let's just be honest, it's because something's not good. 
Like it's not, hey, God's opened this door and he's moving me and, and here's what's going on and we're going to celebrate that and we're going to pray over you and we want to see how God uses that. A lot of times it's, there's discord or disagreement or dissatisfaction and we just disappear. And I just, like, I would love for us to completely change the mindset and environment forever here where, first of all, when there is disagreement, let's talk about it and let's pray through it and let's heal relationships. Don't just disappear over disagreement. Like, Ever. But secondly, any time that any of us are being moved by God and called somewhere else, let's support each other and encourage each other and remind each other that it is about the kingdom and not this kingdom and that that's something that even when we're sad, and I am, like I really am, like I, there'll, be a, there'll be a whole, Tyson lives like, just he lives half a mile from, from us. Um, and he's been over to the house a lot of times, and so there's going to be a hole in our life. There's things, the relationship that we've had with Tyson that's going to change because he's gone, and so I'm not kidding about, like, I feel that, and, and I'm sad about that, but at the very same time, like, we can celebrate what God is doing, that God does move his people, and that that's what we see throughout the whole New Testament. It, it is how God has built his church. It's why the gospel ever got here to us. It's because God kept moving people with the gospel and reaching other people and reaching other people. And that's what we want. We want that type of reproduction. We want that type of multiplication spiritually. Um, and, and so we want to be a church that celebrates that and that we're sensitive to that, that. That really, if we're doing what Jesus has called us to do as a church and we're making disciples here, they aren't all going to stay here. And that's okay. That's really, really good. <laughs> If they all stay here forever, we are missing the New Testament picture of the church. And so it's hard and sad for us in one way, but it's also encouraging and exciting to say, this is what we want God to do in our lives. This is how we want God to use our church. All right, that's not even the sermon today. Ephesians 5. We're going to be in 5.17 through 6.9. I think this is the last week um, for that. And I've talked a lot the past few weeks. And I know that I've said a lot of things that are probably definitely counter to our culture and our world, but then also probably a lot of things that are counter to our typical church culture. Um, and that's not really ever my goal. And you may think, if that's not your goal, you do that an awful lot. <laughs> but honestly, it's not my goal. My goal would be that we would say, what's the Bible say? This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says about God, and if this is true about God, this is what that means for us. And then when that is counter to a lot of the things we're hearing, I think it's all the more important that we would double down and be like, okay, this is what the Bible says. This is who God is. And, and if we're hearing this really loudly, we need to hear this really clearly to, to answer all those things. Um, and so I know that I've talked a lot. And so my goal here at the beginning today, we're going to read this. We're going to pray together and ask God to teach us. We're going to read this one more time. And then if you have truths about God that you've seen the past few weeks when I haven't given you enough time to, to share, we're going to start with those. And then also, just because of the nature of, of what we've done, because I've had a lot of words and it's easy to say things incorrectly or to be wrong in what you say when you speak a lot, if there are things that you've got questions about or you want me to clarify or even that you're like, hey, I don't know if this is exactly right, this is, it is okay. Like This is a time for us to talk about that as well and just say, hey, let, let's hammer it down one more time and see exactly what the Bible says about that and see if we can understand that clearly. So, truths about God, any kind of clarification or correction uh, that would be appropriate for this time, we'll start there. And then for the, the last section, I do have some thoughts about parenting. I don't feel like we've spent as much time on that section yet. Um, and so we'll probably get to that. And if we do, then we'll look at moving, moving forward next week. So that's my thought. Let's pray together right now and we'll jump in.
Father, thank you for this time right now. Please teach us by your Spirit, from your Word, as only you can. Open up the truth of your Word to us right now and open us up to the truth of your Word. Help us to see you, to see who you are, to see the great truth of who you are and how that shapes everything in our lives and especially how it shapes all of our relationships in your church and in our families and in our world. Father, help us see how our relationship with you because of who you are should impact everything else. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, as I read this, what's this teach us about God and then any other thoughts that it would be helpful to you if we tried to, to clear up a little bit today, we'll deal with those too. So here we go. Ephesians 5:17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. All right. What stands out to you? Truths about God, uh, we can start there first. What's this teach about God? Who he is? How he works? Anything you've been thinking the past few weeks and I haven't given you a chance, this is your chance. Wisdom. Yeah, wisdom is understanding God's will. 
that, that God's will is at the core of the center of anything that we would actually call wisdom. And, and again, I, I hope you see how quickly this connects to the truth about who God is as the foundation of everything. That you can have all sorts of knowledge, all sorts of information in your mind, and even all sorts of wisdom, like worldly wisdom that the world will say, hey, that person's really wise, look at the good decisions they make. And if you don't understand God's will, none of that is actually wisdom. That for you to know who God is and what his will is, is crucial, necessary, foundational for all the other information and knowledge that you have to actually be turned into wisdom. That it has to be connected to who God is. What else? God wants us to be united in marriage not consuming one another. You want to expand on that in here or is that just you want that just a stand on its own? Yeah, especially if we read these verses right. And, and I know I've pointed this out a couple times, and we probably really haven't spent as much time on it as I would like, but that's my own fault for spending so much time on everything else. But when Paul quotes right here in Ephesians 5.31, when he quotes Genesis 2, you know, God creates Adam and Eve, brings them together as the first man and woman, first husband and wife in the first marriage. And this is the statement that God declares as he creates marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's God's idea of marriage right there. Now, what's fascinating is when you realize in Genesis 2, that's all you have on the scene, right? I mean, you got Adam and Eve. One man, one woman, brought together. There's no church yet. There hasn't been a fall yet. Right? Genesis, this is Genesis 2. Genesis 3 is when the serpent tempts Adam and Eve, and they eat the fruit, and the fall happens, and then you've got the whole mess of stuff that flows out of that, and then you've got thousands and thousands of years before Jesus actually comes, before the crucifixion and the resurrection, and then you know, more time after that before the church is actually born. And Paul says this crazy thing, like this really is, it's such a great illustration of everything that I hope we get about the Bible. That He says, when you read that in Genesis 2, this declaration that God looks at Adam and Eve, brings them together, they're the first man, the first woman, this is the first marriage, and Paul's like, that's not about marriage. Not primarily. Not first and foremost. Do you see what he's, like, verse 32. This, and he says, and I know it's a mystery. I know this isn't going to like just jump out right off the bat to you. If somebody doesn't tell you, you won't know to think about it this way. He's like, but that's why I'm telling you. This is why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to tell you this right here, so you will know that this is actually the way that God intends for you to read the Bible. And so he says here, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it, verse 31, 
refers to Christ and the church. When God does everything that he does in Genesis 2 when he creates marriage, he has in mind Jesus' union with his church. Jesus' marriage to his bride. The relationship between Jesus and the church. That is the foundation. And so one of the simple ways we get it backwards is we're like, okay, so God created marriage, and it's a really good thing, and then he decided, well, because they understand what marriage is, I'll pattern Jesus and the church after that. No! God, from all eternity past, in his heart and his mind, has known the relationship that he intended to have with his people. He has known what it was going to look like for his son to come as the savior of his people and to claim the church as his bride. He has always seen and known that that's the reality. That's the thing that has always existed in the mind and heart of God because of the gospel. And so he looked at that real thing and said, this is the relationship that I will have as God the Son with my people. And this is the best relationship that could ever exist for a human being. And so I'm going to pattern marriage after that. Like he makes marriage what it is because of what Jesus is with his people. And this is why we don't get to say what marriage is. This is why this isn't up for discussion. It's not a political issue. It's not a social issue. This is not a personal opinion. This is something that the creator of the universe had in mind before time began. And it's not self-defined. This is about Jesus' relationship with his church and what marriage is supposed to be is defined by him and patterned after that. But for us right now, just see that once again, you've got to start with who God is. That God has to be the foundation. Now, as soon as you strip that away and you start somewhere else, everything else is fair game. Like, of course we can have all kinds of discussions and debates and opinions. And, and like, if you strip away the foundation of who God is, everything's in play. And you'll never get back to the right place. <laughs> Ever. But if you start with who God is and his love for his people and his relationship with his bride and then what Jesus, like, as Jesus has filled it out and revealed it and shown us completely what his relationship with his church looks like, that then tells us here's what marriage should look like because marriage is supposed to be patterned after that. But always when we come to the Bible, it refers to Christ and the church. Like always when you come to the Bible. If Genesis 2 is about Jesus, I promise you everything in the Bible is about Jesus. If Genesis 2 is primarily about Jesus and secondarily about marriage, then anything you read in the Bible is primarily about Jesus and secondarily about the details that are patterned after Jesus. this This is just a huge piece of the Bible saying, here's how you should interpret the Bible. Here's why we would approach the Bible this way. And so then we look at Jesus' relationship with the church. This is what Eric's really doing. And he's saying, Jesus takes us and makes us one with him. He unites us with him so intimately that, you know, one of the, I feel like one of the illustrations that I can give to you that's really helpful is if, let's say that you, it doesn't matter, husband, wife, I don't care right now, that you're both single, you're not married yet, and you, you, whoever you are in that relationship, you are poor, broke, bankrupt, you have nothing, all right? And, and then even more, it's not just that you've got nothing in your bank account, you've got a whole lot of debt, you're, you are deep, deep, deep in debt, and you can't get out. And you meet this person who loves you and wants to be united to you and wants to be one with you. And part of that unity in our culture and legally is when you all get married, it's no longer your assets and their assets. It's our assets, right? 
And let's say that this person had a billion dollars in their bank account. When you marry them, you've got a billion dollars in your bank account, right? You're, you're one now. You're joined together, and what is theirs is yours, and what is yours is theirs. And so what happens is that your debt is your all's debt now, and their assets are your all's assets now. And that's exactly, like, I mean, just take out the financial idea and try to think about spiritual value. That is exactly what God says that he has done for us in Jesus. That you come spiritually bankrupt. Poor in spirit is the way Jesus says it in Matthew 5. Right? That, that you lack the spiritual resources that you need to be right with God. And more than that, you're in debt to God. That, that your sin has brought a price, a cost that you can't pay. You owe God for the way that you've sinned against his glory and fallen short of his glory and you've insulted his name and you have not given to him what he deserves from you, which is everything. And so you owe him everything. Like you are in debt for everything. And Jesus comes and he has everything. Perfectly pleasing to the Father. Perfectly obedient to the Father. Perfectly righteous. That he lives the the exact life that the Father calls him to live. He says everything that the Father wants him to say. He does everything that the Father wants him to do. And so he has infinite resources spiritually, infinite standing before God, infinite acceptance with God, infinite approval from God, infinite love from God, a perfect relationship with God. And Jesus comes and says, I'll take all of my assets and all of my resources, and I'll come to you in your poverty and your debt and your bankrupt state, and I'll join, and you can have all my stuff. It'll be yours. Like legally, when God looks at you, he'll say, yeah, that's yours. It's in your account now because your name's on the account with Jesus. That's what faith in Jesus does. That's how you're united to Jesus. Like by faith, you're united to him. And in his grace, he says, yes, you can have it all. And then he even says, and I'll, take your, I'll put my name on your debt. That's what he's doing at the cross. He's saying, your debt is mine and I'll pay it. The price you owe is too steep for you. It's not too steep for me. You can't pay it because you're not God, because you're finite and not infinite, and because you're fallen and not perfect. Jesus is God. He's infinite He's perfect. He's not fallen. Like He has everything he needs to cover all your debt. And he says, I'll do it. Like That's what is going on. Like That type of union where the two become one and share everything. And so then what happens is certainly Jesus doesn't disappear in that relationship, right? <laughs> He's magnified. He's amplified. You, you see more of who Jesus is and more of his glory when he loves and gives that way in that relationship. And then also the thing is, for us, we aren't consumed in that either. Like, he makes us who we're supposed to be. He sets us free from the shame and the guilt and the bondage of all of our sin, and he redeems us, and his spirit comes to live in us and starts to actually make us who God intends for us to be. 
Like all these things in you, like where you were created in God's image, these good things that could have good expression in your life, but they don't because sin keeps poisoning them and twisting them and turning them the wrong way. He starts to straighten them back out. And he starts to make them what they're supposed to be. And you become more of yourself in Jesus than you will ever be apart from Jesus. And so the goal would be if we look and we said that's Jesus' relationship with his people. Marriage is supposed to look like that. That we share. All, all the benefits that either of us have become our benefits. And all the burdens that either of us have become our burdens. And then the goal would be that we amplify who both of us are supposed to be in Jesus. And I say all that, and then I just want to say, like, I'm not trying to put a burden on you where you're like, man, alive. <laughs> like, how do we do that? How do we live up to that? Well, you come right back to you can't apart from Jesus. We are talking about something drastically supernatural and deeply spiritual that the Spirit of Christ has to do in us that our marriages would look like the supernatural union between Jesus and the church. And nothing in the world and nothing natural and no amount of human effort will ever make a relationship look like that. Like this right view of marriage, just like everything else we study on a Sunday morning, it should simultaneously break you of any self-reliance that you would ever turn to. Like You should look at this and you should think, I cannot do that. It should crush your pride. And once it humbles you that way, simultaneously, at the very same time, it should give you the hope of the answer of, God has never called you to do this on your own. God has never called you to do this naturally. He knows you can't, and he wants you to know you can't, and that he promises that he can, and he has in Jesus, and he does, and he will in you. He will break you of thinking that you can in the hope that you will start to trust that he can and ask him to do it. And you will get over yourself and stop looking to yourself and relying on yourself. And you will run to him and you will trust him. And you will ask him for things that he has that you will never have apart from him. But most of the time, for most of us, he's got to convince us that we'll never have it apart from him. And that's why also it's so dangerous if we would come to this with just a human perspective and we wouldn't look at Jesus and the church. Like if, it's only if you start with Jesus and the church that you realize what a high, 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 impossibly high bar this is. That we can't be like Jesus in his relationships. But if we ignore that and we just pull, hey, here's, here, here's eight tips today on how to improve your marriage. Then you walk home, you're like, well, I can, I can, I can do those eight things. Or... I can try to do two of those things today. We'll save two for next week. And after a month, I'll have done those eight things. Like, but the deal is, if we just stay here with this human view of human answers and human relationships, we'll convince ourselves, well, I can do that well enough, and this won't have the impact on our hearts that God intends. God does intend for this to break you so that he can put you back together. But God intends for this to humble you so that you'll find your hope in him. God intends for this to be impossible for you on your own so that you're driven to rely on him so that you find in him strength that you will never have, grace that you will never have, love that you will never have, ability that you will never have. He wants to create a whole new life in you as his spirit lives in you, a new source of life that it doesn't flow out of your strength and ability, but it blows up, flows out of his spirit and his gifts to you. 
And then you, yeah, it's still you. You still live that out, but you're living plugged into him as the source. All right, what else? A couple more. God is completely impartial. And we see this really lots of ways in this text, but obviously we get the explicit statement right here then. There is no partiality with him. That when he looks at a master and a bondservant, a boss and an employee, that those people have the exact same standing before God as each other. Like there's no distinction. And the reason here that he gives is it doesn't matter whether you're the master or the bondservant. Right? It doesn't matter whether you're the one in authority or the one in a submission role in the human relationship. He's still your master. <laughs> your relationship to God is the same no matter what relationship you're in in this life. Do you see that? Like when you're the one who has authority in, one of these, in any of these six categories, he's still your God. And when you're the one that's in the submission role in one of these six categories, he's still your God. And so if you're a husband, your relationship to God is the same as if you're a wife, your relationship to God. And if you're a parent, your relationship to God is the same as if you're a child, your relationship to God. And if you're a boss, your relationship to God is the same as if you're an employee, your relationship to God. So God looks at you and he's like, there's no favoritism. You're all the same to me. Like, not in the sense of that he doesn't understand your distinctions and the great things about you. He, he knows every intimate detail of how he's made you different from anybody else. And he loves who he's made you. But you don't have any favor with him over and above somebody else because of some earthly role or earthly status or earthly power that you have. Like, all of us are beneath him, on our knees before him, looking up to him, needing him, trusting him, worshiping him, thanking him. That's what we should be doing, and when we're not, we're sinning against him. That's it. Like All of us, same category. And so, completely impartial, this is also because the whole thing flows out of him to us. Like The only hope that any of us have of having a relationship with God is because of who he is because he's chosen to come to us, because he's chosen to give to us, because he overflows to us in love and grace that's defined in his very nature. Like, it's not prompted by something in you. That There's not something in you better than somebody else that prompts God to love you instead of them. And there's not something worse in you. Like, there's not something in you worse than somebody else that makes God think, well, I won't love you, but I'll love them. That doesn't exist with God. Like his love for you, his desire for you, his relationship with you comes from who he is. And he's the same yesterday and today and forever. This invitation in Jesus is an invitation to all. Like whosoever will believe, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, it is open to all in Jesus. And then it's also only given to those who respond in faith in Jesus. But nothing about you, nothing about your worldly success or failures, your worldly status, your worldly power or lack thereof, nothing about your personality or your gifts or your abilities or your popularity, nothing about you makes God love you more than anybody else or less than anybody else. You are no more loved than anybody else in the world by God but you are also no more rejected by God than anybody else in the world. Open arms to anyone, everyone, who will come to him in Jesus. God's completely impartial. Any others? Obey your 
Tyson's pointing out the in your Lord in the Lord here that the obedience is in the Lord. And we talked about this some, I think, last week. They kind of run together for him. But it's because of your relationship with Jesus. Not, not primarily because of the human relationships. And I'll, I think we've got time to do this and the parenting thing. I'm going to piggyback on Tyson right here. I was thinking about this with all six of these categories um, and how it starts up here. And I'll point this out a couple of times. That it starts with this overarching to all of us, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That somehow there's, there's something about the, the tone and stance that you take, even when you're in a leadership role or an authority role, that it still has the, the humility and the heart of submission to the people that you're leading. And, and I pointed out that you know, all three of these leadership roles, that the Bible really, like, hammers the main thing to all three of the leadership roles to husbands parents and and masters is don't do this in a demanding overbearing self-serving way like paul's always saying here's anytime you're in a leadership role here's going to be the danger for your heart you're going to make it about you and you're going to use your leadership for you to get what you want and you are going to abuse and misuse the people who are underneath your leadership for your purposes. And over and over and over, he warns you that lead in a gentle, kind, thoughtful, caring, loving, gracious way like Jesus. Lead with a tone of submission. That's the only way I know how to say it. Like lead with a heart that is still putting others first. And so, so we get that. And, but then also for all the submission roles, he's like, look, this is going to be counter to your human nature. <laughs> At the core of who you are now, because of the fall and because of sin and because you are born with sin in your heart, at the core of who you are is rebellion. And it's primarily rebellion against God. But then it, it comes out as rebellion against any authority over you in the whole world. You, you rebel against teachers and you rebel against government and you rebel against parents and you rebel against spouse and you rebel against your boss and just anybody that has, even when they have a rightful claim over you and it can be the smallest little thing, there's something in your heart that just wells up and is like, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And you may be like really strong and really forceful and, and you basically punch people in the face and you're like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Or you may be really sneaky and really manipulative and you're like, I'll just find my ways to do what I want no matter what and you won't even know I'm doing what I want. And I'll make it look to you like I'm doing what you want just so you'll leave me alone and think that I'm doing what you want so that I can really do what I want. And that's in us. And throughout this whole section, Paul, over and over and over, he's in the Lord because of the Lord, like the Lord, like Jesus, like Christ, in the Lord, of the Lord. And I mean, I've circled them all one week. And so... What he's saying is, if you think of Jesus up here, and I'm going to draw him, like, if that's the sun, I'm a terrible artist, I'm trying to give you a visual illustration here, all right? And then I'm going to put a crown on him, because it's Jesus. And the reason, that's a crown. Hey, easy. <laughs> My word, that was a tough crowd today. Um, but the reason is because what we're saying right now, like the ultimate leadership position, the ultimate authority in our life should be King Jesus. Like see him in the role of leadership right now. And so now here we are, and if you want to like, okay, stick guy on his knees, all right? 
bowing down. Like, this is what it should be. And, and by the way, you can blame all this on Darren, Darren Foster. We were talking this week, and, and he was talking through kind of this illustration, and it grew in my head, so it's his fault that I'm giving this to you. So, now here's what should happen. If your relationship with Jesus is right, as we've read these six different aspects of relationships in the world, that the light shining from Jesus, the, like, like the sun right here, the king, should cast this shadow down here. And, and by the way, let me do one more thing. Now that I showed you you're on your knees, this is all about your heart, right? That your heart would be submitted to him. And so up here, there's a reality of your relationship with Jesus, whatever your heart is really like before him. And that should cast a shadow down here onto all of your other relationships, that if whatever your relationship with Jesus is like, that's going to show up in all your other relationships. And so when you're in right relationship with Jesus, that's going to flow out of you in your marriage, in your parenting, in the way you respond to your parents, at work, whether you're a boss or an employee. Like that, that's going to be what you see in all these other relationships. So here's the problem. None of us are like this with Jesus, right? Honest, like, not, like if we're saying full heart submitted to Jesus. And so you come back up here and it's like, mm, maybe that part of me is submitted to Jesus. And the rest of it's missing. And that's supposed to be a heart, but that's what he's got. So now we come down here in all of our relationships, and that's all that shows up, right? And the rest of this is missing. Like it's not what it's supposed to be. And, and this is with all these other relationships, with all these other people in your life. And the reason that we're having trouble submitting to these people, the reason we're having trouble loving these people, the reason we're having trouble leading these people in a humble and gentle and kind way, like whatever it is, it's not really because our relationship with them is broken. It's because our relationship up here isn't what it's supposed to be. That we aren't, not because of Jesus, but from our side, we aren't relating to Jesus the way that we're supposed to, and that reflects in all of our... So now here's the other thing we do wrong, though. We look at this, and we're like, man, none of these are what they need to be. And we're frustrated with our kids, and we're frustrated with our spouse, and we're frustrated with our parents, and we're frustrated with our boss, and we're frustrated with the people who work for us. And so then we spend all this time trying to fix all of these relationships. And this is the one that's broken. If this is, really, if this is the real thing up here, I'm pointing up here between you and Jesus, and this is a shadow down here at the bottom, can you fix a shadow no, like, I don't care what you do all day long, you can't fix a shadow. Like, if you work on the shadow itself, it's always going to be a shadow of whatever's casting the shadow, right? If you can't make it fuller, you can't make it small. Like, it just is what it is. But if you, if you know, hey, this shadow's not what it's supposed to be, what that should click for all of us is, oh, that's because the real thing's not what it's supposed to be. This is a relationship with Jesus problem for me. Like the reason I hate my boss this much isn't because my boss is so easy to hate, and he may be. It's because I've got a relationship with Jesus problem. The reason I'm so impatient with my kids is not because my kids are so overwhelmingly frustrating, and they may be, but it's because I've got a relationship with Jesus problem. 
The reason that I don't love my wife the way I should is not because my wife is unlovable, and maybe she is, but it's because I've got a relationship with Jesus problem. The reason that I struggle any time that I hear anything about submission and respect, it's not because of, of my husband and how overbearing or how insensitive he is, and maybe he is, but it's ultimately because I have a relationship with Jesus problem. Like, and what happens with all of these, and this is like the last overarching thing I want to say, and then I'm going to try to dive into parenting for just a minute, is with all of these, there's a tendency, whichever side of it that we're on, like if you're the husband, you'll do this to the wife. If you're the wife, do this to the husband. If you're the parents, you'll do this to the kids. If you're the kids, you'll do this to the parents. You see what I mean? Is that we'll grab this like a weapon, and we'll go to the other person in the relationship, like this is what you should do and what you don't do. And God's not handing you a weapon here. Again, it's why he doesn't address, like husbands, he doesn't address you concerning the wife. He's not like, hey, make your wife do this. And wives, he doesn't say, commit your husband to do this. And he doesn't even say, he doesn't say, parents, make your children obey. He says, children obey. But he's addressing them. What he says to you is, when they're struggling, don't provoke them to anger. And that's really like a, that is very stunning when you think about it. That his command to parents isn't, parents, make your children obey. It's parents, do not lead and use your authority and discipline in such a way that you provoke them to anger. Don't be overbearing and harsh and demanding with your children, even when they're struggling. So he's not giving you a weapon to use against the other person. What he's giving you, and what I hope you see from this illustration and from what we set up here, he's giving you a scalpel to expose your own heart. And you can use a scalpel like a weapon, but that's not what it's meant for, and that's not when it's a good thing. Like, he's wanting to expose in you the tendencies towards self-centeredness in the way that you lead. And he's wanting to expose in you the rebellion that isn't willing to submit. And he says, hey, that is you to me. That, that is, God is saying, you are self-centered instead of God-centered. And that's why you don't lead in a loving way. And you are rebellious instead of submissive. Like you want to be God instead of trusting that I really am God. And he takes every one of these relationships and they're all, they're important. They're important in society. They're important in the family. I'm not, they're, they're important spiritually. I'm not minimizing the human relationships. But he's like, they're all secondary to your relationship with him. And he uses them to expose what's still lacking or broken in your relationship with him. Not because anything's lacking or broken in him. He is offering you perfect love and perfect acceptance. And he's like, I want you to receive more of it. I want more of my light to shine on you and you to be able to enjoy it. And so we've got to take some of these broken pieces and we've got to fix them. And the only way it's going to happen is if I show you they're there. Like marriage is a huge sanctification tool. <laughs> Parenting is a huge sanctification tool. <laughs> Work, whether you are a boss or an employee or you're both, and a lot of us are both with people above us and both, is a huge sanctification tool if we realize that it's about God first and foremost, that your entire life is about God. And one last thing that popped in my head while I was talking. I know I said it last week, but I don't feel like I said it when we had God is completely impartial. The other way this text shows us that, not just saying it specifically, is that in this culture, all of the, the submission roles, the wives, the children, the bond servants, they had no legal standing, they had no legal value at that time. 
And generally, like publicly, somebody like Paul in the culture would not even have spoken to those people. It's, like, it's not just that he wouldn't acknowledge them as his equal, he wouldn't even acknowledge them as fully human. And notice how Christianity steps into a culture that devalues people and it looks at the people who are devalued and it looks them directly in the eye and humanizes them. Like Paul talks to wives as equals and he talks to children as equals and he talks to bond servants as equals and he says you're fully valuable before God. None of these other people. Like God has no partiality to them over you. He talks to them as equals, and he even goes so far to make, it's not startling to us, but it would have been to them, not just that he addresses them, which was startling enough, but he addresses them first. Wives before husbands, children before parents, bond servants before masters. With every single one of them, he's saying, like, you are fully loved and accepted. By God. It does not matter your place or your status in the world. It doesn't matter what society or culture says about your value. It doesn't matter how human beings treat you. That says nothing about how God sees you. He loves you in Jesus. He accepts you in Jesus. No matter what you are worth to the world, even if you're worthless to the world, to God you are worth the death of His Son. You're worth it to him. And that should change the way we as the church see people. The way that we reach out to people. The the categories that we would shatter and say, we're not thinking in those categories anymore. Like when we talk about people's value and worth and our desire for them to know Jesus, that's everybody. Everybody, people we love, people we can't stand, people who are just like us, people who are completely different from us people we agree with, people we disagree with, fully equal with us, needing Jesus just like us. It's still the same. It's not just, hey, yeah, whoever you are, we accept it no matter what. That's not what we're saying. None of us are okay that way. (laughs) Like what we're saying, we're all equal. We're saying we're all equally wrong before God. We're all equally bankrupt before God. We're all equally in need of God's grace and love in Jesus. We all equally need to know Jesus and hear this gospel. All right. Oh, boy. Parenting, I had a lot of thoughts here. Let's just say we'll make it as far as we can. And I'll I'll stop as close to on time as I can, and then if we have to pick up next week, we will. But this verse, and, and just so you know, the reason this stands out to me is because of how much I struggle. Because I read this verse, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And, and just first of all, parents, like I know that we live in a culture of just constant comparison and competition and pressure to be as good of a parent as everybody else is projecting on social media. And like if I could just relieve you of that and say, first of all, everything you see on social media is a lie. Everything. Okay? Just stop looking at it if you want to. It it could be great for your mental health. Secondly, you don't answer to the standards of social media. You answer to the standards of God. And so fail in the eyes of social media if you're listening to what God says. And just stop putting this insane pressure and shame and guilt on yourself because you don't measure up. God knows you don't measure up. He loved you when you didn't measure up. And he loves you when you still don't. And he promises that he has enough for you in Jesus to cover the gap. 
And so everything I'm getting ready to say, it's like, I struggle with this. I'm not trying to heap more on you, but it is re- they're good reminders for me of if I really start to understand the gospel and I understand who God is as my father and how he relates to me in Jesus, do I live this out toward my, like, is this impacting my heart? So the do not provoke your children to anger. It doesn't say if your kids get angry, you did something wrong. There's a difference between my kids got angry and I provoked my children to anger. You may have some kids that just get angry a lot. (laughs) I'm familiar with that. It doesn't always mean that you made them angry, okay? So even that, another translation says don't exasperate your children. Like, don't, don't, don't with your misuse of authority and your lack of understanding of who they are and your lack of compassion and grace toward them, don't make it worse than it already is for them. And look, they've got the same problems in their heart that you do. If you can understand the problems in your heart, the sin in your heart, then you know what they're dealing with. And hopefully that stirs up some compassion and grace for you toward them. So it's not saying that if they get angry, you've done something wrong. But it is saying, be, like, like, let that be like, oh, hey, yellow light here. Am I doing something to make this? Like, how, how can I love like Jesus in this moment in a way that helps me parent better? And so these are thoughts I've had, and you could probably add to them, but here's ways that parents, and we're doing this in reverse, like how parents exasperate their children or how parents provoke their children to anger. Making our priorities the authority instead of God's word. That's number one, because here's what it says. Don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so the first question is, do you know who God is well enough that who he is is shaping the way that you discipline and teach your children? Because if you don't know him, you can't give him to them. And so what we usually do is there's things that are important to us. And this may be academic success, it may be athletic success, it may be financial success, and, and we focus, it may just be like popular success, but they're, they're, well, they're well looked upon, that people think highly of them. But we take these things that we want for them, and over time it shapes the way that we lead them. That most of the decisions we make are aimed toward, I want them to be successful in this way, or I want them to have this, or I want them to get this. And then we look up when they're 25, and we're like, why don't they love Jesus? Because that wasn't a priority for us. Like We didn't raise them to love Jesus. We raised them to love good grades and love sports trophies and love a career path that would be financially viable. And so if we make our priorities instead the authority instead of the Word of God, over time what's going to happen is you're going to be pushing your children towards something that's not best for their hearts. And that's going to exasperate them in some way or another. And these first three, by the way, I, uh, I alliterated them for, them just, for you just because it worked. And so it's the same thing, making our preferences. And, and, and the difference here between priorities and preferences making our preferences the authority instead of God's word. What I mean here is, hey, there's a way that I like things to be around the house. Just, this is just as an example. And it has nothing to do with what's right or wrong in the Bible, but I am really insistent that my kids get in line with what I want, and I use my authority to make them be the type of kids that I want in my house. 
It has nothing to do with their hearts loving Jesus. And you've stepped outside of like your authority is a delegated authority from God to you. And the things that you should be adamant and black and white about are his things. And everything else, everything else should come with a lot of compassion and a lot of grace and a lot of flexibility lest you set yourself up as God over them instead of God being God over them. Your preferences are not the ultimate authority for the way your children need to behave or the way they need to approach life in your house. God's word is. Third one, making our personality the authority instead of God's word. And, and there's, you can go down lots of trails with this, but let's just take this one, like introverts and extroverts. If you're an introvert, which I am, you like it quiet at a certain point in time. You like to recharge. And a whole lot of your lashing out at your kids can just be because they're louder than you want to be. <laughs> they got more energy than you do. And they aren't necessarily doing anything wrong in that moment. And what, what has become the driving force for the way that you discipline them in that moment is your personality and a personality difference between you and them. Now, on the other side, and I... I that one is, hey, I feel guilty of this. Now you flip it, and it's like, man, this annoys me to no end, so I'm just gonna, this is my chance to say it to you all. Y'all extroverts, it's okay for us to be introverts. All right? We don't have to talk a lot. We don't have to say a lot of things. We can process internally. Like we can think for 10 days and come to a conclusion and give you one answer, and it's okay. Like, we don't have to say 87 things out loud and all of them not be actually what we mean until we get to number 88. Fair enough? All right? That was my one chance to say that. But seriously, like we have introverts that look at extroverts like, it's wrong for you to be so extroverted. And we've got extroverts that look, you need to be more. If you do that to your kids, like you're going to exasperate your kids. Like one of the ways to love them in either direction is to say, who's God made them? God's made all of us in his image, all of us, and we're all finite, and he's infinite. So we're all like just a little sliver of his image. And that means all of us need all of us to see more of who God is. Do you get that? Like you're a little piece of God's image that nobody else is, and everybody else is a little piece of God's image that nobody else is. And if you can learn to see that in your children and appreciate the beauty of that and help to amplify that and magnify that, it'll go a long, long way towards you not provoking them to anger. Like, see who they are, learn how to meet them there, and then help them, like, turn that toward Jesus. Because the deal is, just like, hey, it's not bad to be an extrovert, it's not bad to be an introvert, it's also not good. It's a neutral thing. Both these can be really, really sinful, too, when they're not turned toward Jesus. And so what we need is Jesus redeeming this and Jesus redeeming this. Jesus bringing the things out of this that are good and let your kids be the redeemed version of themselves. Or Jesus redeeming this and bringing the good things out of this and, and let your kids be the redeemed version of this as Jesus redeems those good things. All right, number four. Focusing, and remember this is all backwards. This is how you, you will exasperate them. On external results or consequences instead of the heart. And I'll try to give you a quick example of what I have in mind here so we can keep moving. Let's say in our house that we say, hey, you all can't throw the basketball back and forth with each other because it's, it's too 
too chaotic, too loud, too noisy, it may break something. No, we don't actually say that, but let's just say that we do. And our girls throw the basketball anyway. And we're like, hey, we told you not to do that. Please don't do that. Okay, that's our response when they throw the basketball. Now we say, don't throw the basketball back and forth. They do anyway, and they knock over a $100 vase, and it breaks. Do you react the same way when that happens as when nothing got broken? Honestly, parents, mm -mm. you know why? Because you're not worried about their heart of disobedience. You're worried about the $100 vase. And what are we teaching our kids right there? This material thing matters more than what's going on in your heart. Because the problem is exactly the same. Right? I gave you the same instruction. You disobeyed. We need to stop and talk about the rebellion that's in your heart and what that reveals about your relationship with Jesus and how Jesus needs to heal that. And I need to pray for you that Jesus will do something in your heart. That I... But what we do is, hey, there's nothing external that went wrong, so no big deal. Something external went wrong, I go ballistic. Do you see what happens? And do you see the inconsistency that that communicates to our kids? Like if we stay on the surface level and look at external results and external consequences and we gauge our reaction based on that, we're going to miss their hearts. And the gospel is always about their hearts. Their relationship with Jesus is always about their hearts. And this can also go in the direction of they can break something and they haven't done anything wrong. They shouldn't be in trouble for that. That you look at it and you're like, no, you were doing something that is perfectly, you're allowed to do that in our house. You're not disobeying anything we've ever directly said to you. You weren't even being foolish or reckless. This was an accident. And I'll tell there's times I get angry at accidents. And that's a problem with me and not a problem with them. Now, that's a lack of understanding on my part. That's impatience on my part. That's frustration on my part. And that's God revealing my heart in that moment. And so focus on their heart instead of just external results and consequences. It ties really closely to this. Another way to exasperate them, controlling behavior instead of praying for their heart. And so really closely connected here, but you know, imagine with our girls that they're fighting over something, that we've got one of something, and they both want it. Okay, there, there's two, two ways that we can deal with that, that resolves the issue. And again, me being an introvert, like, I get tired of the conflict, I get tired of the noise. Let's just get so one, one option is, hey, you go to your room, you go to your room. Just go away till you can get along. We fix the problem, right? If we think the problem is really they're fighting over this thing. Or the other option is, well, let's just get two of those. We'll give you one, we'll give you one. In both those cases, we haven't dealt with their heart at all. They both go to their rooms just as selfish as they were when they're fighting right? Or they both have their thing now, just as selfish as they were when there was only one. The problem is a self-centeredness and a selfishness that we all know because it's natural to all of us. And, and so this thing's not the issue, and the disagreement's not the issue. And, and to stop in that moment and say, no, there, there's a heart issue deeper than this, and the heart issue is you don't love your sister the way that Jesus says you should. The heart issue is that you still love yourself more than you love other people. The heart issue is that the sin in you still makes you selfish toward others. And so let's talk about that. And let's talk about how Jesus is not like that at all. Let's talk about how Jesus gave himself and poured himself out and put everybody before himself. And let's talk about the fact that you need Jesus to live in you because you will never naturally be like that. Like every one of these end up, the things that we can get wrong as parents, and listen, I get them wrong a lot. I, I'm... The reason I can say these, and you're like, oh, dang. 
It's because I get them wrong, okay? Like, that's how I see them. I get them. But when you do get it right, every one of these things where you could get it wrong and focus externally is the exact same moment where you can focus on their heart and it can be a gospel conversation. The training and instruction of the Lord, constantly telling them this is what the gospel really is. This is who God really is. This is how God loves you. And if he lives in us, this is how he changes us. And we all need him to do that. Unnecessary no's. There are plenty of necessary no's in all of our lives. Can I ride my scooter down the middle of Mount Juliet Road? No. Always going to be no, just in case you're wondering. Daddy, can I paint your toenails tonight with peaches and cream nail polish? Yeah. <laughs> No reason to say no to that. I mean, really, you got to say no enough. Like, yeah, you can. And hopefully remember to take it off before I go out with sandals on. Sometimes I've forgotten. But, and I mean, I could give you a thousand examples. But the, again, like you want to exasperate them. You want to provoke. Say no when you don't need to say no. And then when you do need to say no, you've already watered it down. Like, well, they say no to everything. It doesn't mean anything when they say no. They're always going to say no. Say yes when you can. When you say no, it means something. Like there's, there's a reason I'm saying no. We'll do one more today, and I'm going to stop. It's time to stop. This is a good one to stop on. <laughs> Motivating. This is how you provoke them to anger. Motivating with shame and guilt. Instead of love and grace. We all know what that means. I don't need to talk about it, whether it's in your life or in your kid's life. I just want to talk about it with you, about God, as we wrap up. You're guilty before God. He knows that. And he doesn't shame you for it. He loves you anyway. He loves you fully and completely in Jesus. He looks at you in the gospel and he says, there is now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God teaches a deep, eternal, spiritual truth with that. He knows and he has taught us that the power of love and grace to change a heart, the power of love and grace to change people, is stronger than any shame, any guilt, that the Spirit is stronger than the law. And we, because we get everything backwards, we don't believe that. <laughs> and so when we see something really bad and ugly come out of our kids, like instead of us saying, that's completely normal, <laughs> I should expect that. that, that that's in me. And it's, in a way, it's my fault. That's, I gave that to them. <laughs> and then saying, okay, so that's normal. Here's how God responds to that. With a powerful love and grace that transforms hearts. But a lot of times, instead of doing that, we're so shocked by whatever this thing is. And then we're so afraid of what's going to happen in our kids' lives. They're like, I got to do something to change. I can't 
this, this is too weak, this love and grace thing. I can't take the chance of letting this grow inside of them. And so I've got to bring the hammer down. And if I can just shame them and guilt them into not doing that again, that'll be better for them. It won't be better for them. You won't change their hearts that way. You won't even change their behavior that way. Their behavior will go underground. They'll learn how to hide it more from you. They'll learn how to manifest it in new ways that, that you don't see. And that's not what God does. God says, Luke 15, just read the parable of the prodigal son this afternoon. And God says, come back to me in the middle of all your shame and guilt and failure, and I'll love you. I won't motivate you to come back with shame and guilt. I'll motivate you to come back with love and grace. And there won't be, oh yeah, well, you did that so wrong, you've got to be a servant now. No, like, you're a son. You're a child. I love you completely. You can't send your way out of that. <laughs> you can't make him stop loving you. And I think to all of us, especially as parents, since we focused on it this morning, God's saying, you've got to know his love for you as a father so much that you start to trust him that you can love your children that way. But if you've never really encountered and believed that God loves you that way, you don't know how powerful it can be. And that's why you doubt it'll work in your kids' lives. But if you've ever had any of those moments in your life where you've stood before him and you know you've got no claim on him at all, that you are utterly bankrupt and you've broken everything in your life and there's no reason why he should love you, and he loves you anyway, and he accepts you anyway, and he looks at you and he's like, you're still my child. You were never my child because of the way you behave. You're my child because I love you and I adopted you and I made you my child in Jesus. If you've ever felt him love you like that, then you know there's nothing better that you could ever give to your kids. There's nothing more powerful you could ever give to your kids. And I'm not saying it's going to make them perfect overnight. Like we're talking, we're in this, like we're playing the long game here. Right? Controlling behavior is a short game. I, any behavior you give me, I can probably come up with some kind of solution to change that behavior today and wreck their hearts. Or we can say over the long haul, I want your heart to learn to love Jesus. I want your heart to know how much you need Jesus. And then what ends up happening, again, even though you're this authority in their life, you get to walk right beside them and you get to say, let me tell you something, I need Jesus that way. I want to love Jesus that way. I want to see Jesus that way. And I struggle too, and I understand why you struggle. Let's go to Jesus together. And I'm not done. I've got five more, so we'll pick up there next week. But I've got I've to let you go. We've got to get kids here in just a minute. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing, and we're going to thank God that he does love us that way. That he loves us that way even when we fail to love that way. And So don't walk out of here today, oh, I do this terribly. I do this terribly, a whole lot, a whole lot. And God's love is just the same for people who do this terribly. He's like, that's fine, admit that you do it terribly, confess that you do it terribly, and then let me start changing you. So let's pray together and ask him to do that, and we'll sing together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word and for your gospel. Please, Father, drive it into our hearts and help us to understand it more. Help us to believe it and be changed by it. 
and help us to love each other this way in all of our relationships. Husbands and wives and parents and children, bosses, employees, friends in this body. Father, please help us to encounter the depth of your love in such a way that it fills us up and it flows out of us to others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.